All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Faith in Jesus Christ is the only issue in salvation. The issue is whether or not we believe Christ is the only way and that he is the one who died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful to be able to study your word, that we have the freedom in this nation to study your word, to proclaim the truth of your word, and that we have no fear of persecution. Although, Father, there are ominous clouds on the horizon that we see and hear more today than ever before in our nation's history of people who wish to take away aspects of that freedom, the freedom to assemble, the freedom to proclaim the truth of your word without exception, and the freedom to witness to others, to explain the gospel, the good news that we have freedom from sin, freedom from our sin nature because Christ paid the penalty for our sins and because Jesus came, we can have eternal life and we can know that we have eternal life. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we not only recognize the importance of the message of eternal life through faith in Christ, but also that once we've been given that new life in Christ, that it is important and incumbent upon us as believers to grow and mature, to take up the challenge, not just to be saved, not just to be justified, but to be mature, to grow, to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we study today, you will uh, challenge us with the importance of this 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 uh, mandate that the Lord has given to us to be disciples of him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, and we will uh, continue our study in Jesus' instructions to his, his disciples. Now, in the first part of this chapter, we emphasize that he gave a unique commission to these 12 to go out only to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This fit his initial plan during the first year or year and a half of his ministry where he is focused on the message of the presentation, the offer of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, in the term that Matthew uses. That this is nothing less than the promised and prophesied kingdom that had been revealed in the Old Testament that was the ultimate destiny for the Jewish people a kingdom that would be centered in Jerusalem, a kingdom that would be led by a unique king, a king who was both God and man, a king who is the descendant of David, who would sit upon that throne. 
And this is why it's so important to, as we reflect upon the story of the birth of Jesus, that we recognize that, that in the genealogies, uh, both Mary and Joseph have their genealogies traced back to David. Joseph's genealogy went through one of the evil kings of Judah, Jeconiah, and God had brought uh, and announced a judgment on Jeconiah that no one from his line would sit upon the throne of David. And so the, the uh, gospel of Matthew, as we studied in Matthew chapter 1, as it presents that genealogy that leads down to Joseph, is showing that Joseph could not be the biological father of Jesus and have Jesus qualified to go to the uh, to go to, to to be the son of David and to be an heir of the of the of the crown of David. And in that, also in Matthew chapter one and two, there's the emphasis that of the virgin birth that that this was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah seven fourteen that the Messiah would come and be born of a virgin. And that was the understood meaning of the prophecy. The rabbis understood that when they translated Isaiah 7.14 into uh, Hebrew, I mean into Greek in the Septuagint, they used the distinct word Parthenon, indicating a, a virgin. And so Jesus was qualified to be the king by his birth, and he comes to present the kingdom. And as we've studied, he offered the kingdom to, to the Jewish people, and he went about Galilee and uh, Judea announcing the proximity, the nearness of the kingdom. And in this chapter, he sends his disciples out to do the same thing. As the promised prophesied king, he had demonstrated his credentials through the healing of the sick, casting out demons, healing lepers, uh, restoring sight to the blind, all of which were given as uh, credentials from the Old Testament that this is how you would know the Messiah because he has these these credentials and performs these miracles. And so now Jesus sends out his disciples, the 12, to do the same thing, to heal the sick, to uh, cleanse the lepers, to restore sight to the blind, but he warns them that not all will accept his message, their message. In fact, many will not. They will reject him, and because they reject him who is their master, they will also reject them, that they will come under persecution. Even close family members would seek their arrest and have them incarcerated and tortured and even put to death. And so in response to that, Jesus warned them, and we saw this in our study last week, he warned them three times, do not be afraid. And he emphasized this in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 10, uh, do not fear them, for there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed, and uh, nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And this brings us into a future orientation that Jesus is telling them, not to be afraid now that even though some things are done in secret today, everything will be exposed at a future judgment. For believers, that is at what is called the judgment seat of Christ. For unbelievers, that will be at what is called the great white throne judgment. A second time, Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. 
And verse 28, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, don't fear those who can just do bodily harm, but rather uh, fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, it doesn't say that in the Greek. It says Gehenna. Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was to the south of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom was the site of one of the most horrific sins of Israel described in the Old Testament. This is where they erected uh, idols to Moloch. And in, in the worship of Moloch, they committed human sacrifice, infant sacrifice, and that they would uh, uh, burn in these idols uh, their children alive, infants alive as a sacrifice. And because of that, Isaiah announced that God would bring judgment upon them and they would be removed from the land. And so this, this idiom that's used in Matthew regarding the valley of Hinnom, uh, sometimes it's translated hell, but that's really a mistranslation. It is an emphasis on temporal divine judgment for disobedience. Every time this is mentioned in, in the New Testament, it is a reflection upon how it was used in the Old Testament. The Old Testament judgment wasn't focusing on an eternal lake of fire judgment. It was focusing on the fact that because Israel had disobeyed God, violated the covenant with Moses, had worshipped other gods, violating the uh, first two commandments, that because of that, they would go through a horrific judgment in time and they would have their uh, nation taken away from them and they would be removed from the land. And so when we read this, it's best to understand this, that they would rather fear the one who is able to bring uh, judgment upon both soul and body in divine judgment in time, focusing on in the in the fires of Gehenna. So this is the... Uh, second, second way in which he says, fear not. And the third way is a conclusion given in verse 31. Do not fear, therefore you, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, all of this emphasizes something to do with the future. And I want to add something new to what I said last time related to these last three verses, verses 29 to 31. If you, I want you to notice a couple of things as you look in your Bible. In verse 29, Jesus introduces this illustration from the sparrows. He says, do not fear those who kill, excuse me, do, he's, verse 29, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. And then in the next verse, verse 30, he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And then in verse 31, he says, Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, one of the things that you should note is that in verse 31 and in verse 29, the focus is on this illustration with sparrows. Sandwiched in between is this statement about the numbering of the hairs of our head. Often when this verse is taught, the emphasis is on the fact that God is omniscient. He knows everything about us, and he pays attention. It goes beyond that. I hinted at this last time. I wanted to bring this out a little more fully this time. So when we look at this verse, it tells us that the focal point in terms of the essence of God is not simply upon his omniscience, and his providential care of his creatures, his awareness of what is going on in, in his creation, 
but it has something to do with his will. You notice it says, uh, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? The point here is that they're not worth a whole lot. They are one of the more insignificant, perhaps, aspects of God's creation. And then it says, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. The focal point here is not upon his omniscience. It doesn't say, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's knowledge. It says, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Now, the will of God is often described in some different categories. We talk about God's sovereign will and God's, or sometimes God's permissive will, and then we talk about God's decreed will. Let's think about those two categories for a minute. In God's sovereign will or his permissive will, we're talking about what God has allowed to happen within human history. With the term God's decreed will or his revealed will, this is talking about what God has uh, has revealed should be done. So in the Garden of Eden, we have an example of God's, dec- God's uh, excuse me, God's revealed will. In God's revealed will, God says, thou shalt not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not God's revealed will for Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God gave them volition. He gave them individual responsibility, and they had the option to obey or disobey, and that was God's permissive will or his sovereign will. He allowed for them to to disobey him. He allowed for them to sin, and suffered the consequences of that. And that consequence brought and introduced evil into human history. It brought judgment upon all of God's creation, and it brought judgment into human history. And so we go through evil. We suffer because there is evil in the world, because ultimately Adam's decision introduced sin and evil into the, into the human race. And so God allows, through permissive will, evil to continue because of his omniscience. In his omniscience, he knows all things, and he knows that by allowing certain things to take place, that as, as they take place, certain things are, uh, will happen, certain things will take place, they go far beyond our capability of understanding. It's far beyond our omniscience. This was the issue that was raised in the book of Job, is Job encounters undeserved suffering, massive undeserved suffering. His friends all try to tell him what many people believe today is if you have suffering in your life, it's because of something you did. But many times in the first two chapters of Job, we're told that God says to Satan, have you not looked at my servant Job, he is righteous before me. Again and again, it's emphasized that Job was a righteous man. He had done nothing wrong, that that the suffering that was encountered in his life was not the result of the decisions that he made. And so Job is faced with the question, how do you explain Undeserved suffering. How do you explain the existence of evil in the world? This is a question that has plagued many down through the centuries. And what God, the answer that God finally gives to Job is that 
I'm not going to explain it to you because if I did, you couldn't understand it. Your knowledge is so finite that it cannot comprehend what my omniscience can comprehend. And so God pointed that out through a series of rhetorical questions to Job, questions about where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I created the stars and and the planets? Where were you when I created life? Where were you when the angels uh, shouted for joy when I laid the foundations of the earth? These questions were to make Job focus on the fact that he could not if he could not comprehend the entirety of God's creation, how in the world could he be able to comprehend all of the information that was fed through God's omniscience into his sovereign rule over creation where he would allow certain uh, sins and uh, certain things to take place, allow evil to take place because he understood what the ultimate end would be. And so this is what's brought out here, is that God's will is fully aware of whatever suffering the committed disciple will encounter in life through persecution. God is not only uh, not unaware of the suffering that you will encounter in life as you seek to grow and mature spiritually, but that, that this is something that he allows for an ultimate purpose related to many different factors, including our understanding of his grace, his goodness, our learning to trust in him, and our spiritual growth. And so this reminds us of the principle in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is the one overseeing these things. So in Matthew 10.29, Jesus is saying that, that he uses the illustration of the sparrow, that God, that even the falling of the sparrow is comprehended within the sovereign permissive will of God. And he, the illustration then is given that even the hairs of your head are all numbered, that God understands something that none of us can comprehend. Not one of us can count the number of hairs that are in our head. Some of us are getting to a point where it might be a little more possible. But it's beyond our comprehension. That was the same issue that God was raising with Job. If I give you an answer, you can't comprehend it. It's beyond your knowledge. And so this is the illustration, the point of verse 30. And then Jesus concludes, Don't fear, therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. Therefore, God is paying much closer attention to whatever suffering you encounter, and it has a greater value and greater purpose. Now, having warned them and then having prepared them for uh, for encountering persecution by teaching them not to fear, he then goes back to the topic, no more imperatives here, but he goes back to the topic of encouraging them as they face and encounter this opposition. This is what begins in verse 32 and goes down through the end of the chapter in verse 42. Now, as we come to this, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching them about what is what what is involved in being a disciple. 
first thing we need to understand is that the term disciple is not a synonym for being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all believers are disciples, but in the way Jesus is using the term disciple here in these passages, uh, he's using it as a believer who seeks to mature, seeks to grow, seeks to be fully obedient to the Lord. Now, a couple of times the word disciple is used when it refers to unbelievers. It refers to Judas as a disciple, and he was an unbeliever. But generally, the word disciple refers to a category of believer, the category of believer that seeks to press forward toward spiritual maturity. So we have to come come to these passages and realize that Jesus isn't talking about how to get to heaven. He's not talking about things that have to change in our lives in order for us to be acceptable to God. He's not talking about how to become saved. He's talking about the challenge for how a saved person should live who is walking with the Lord. Now, we've described this in the past with this chart, and we need to understand the distinctions here, that there are actually three ways in which the Bible uses the word saved, and there are three different phases or stages to the Christian life. The first phase is justification. We use Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as an example of salvation here for that, that we have been saved by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So in Ephesians 2.89, we're told that we are saved by faith alone, that it is a free gift. It is not something we earn. It is something that is freely given to us. And this takes place, phase one salvation takes place in an instant in time when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so we refer to this as being saved from the penalty of sin. We are no longer spiritually dead, but we're made alive in Christ, and we have a new life in him. Now, what are we going to do with that new life? Are we going to just let it be there, or are we going to develop that new life, and are we going to grow spiritually? This is the second phase, phase two, referred to as spiritual life. The first phase is sometimes described as positional sanctification. We are in Christ, and we can never be taken from that position. The second is described as progressive sanctification, or our ongoing spiritual growth. It is said here that we are saved from the power of sin. We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is spiritual growth. Now, phase one is faith in Christ. That's becoming a believer. Phase two, the issue is, in relation to discipleship, are you willing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What is involved in becoming a disciple? It's not the same as becoming becoming saved. Becoming saved is a free gift, but becoming a disciple involves effort. It involves work. It involves study. It involves application. It involves facing and handling the adversities of life with the provisions that God has given us in his word. It it demands that we come to know God through his word and that we are effective students of the word of God. So phase one is a free gift by faith alone in Christ alone, but phase two has to do with 
applying the word and growing to spiritual maturity. And then phase three is our final glorification when we're absent from the body and we're face to face with the Lord and we are finally saved from the presence of sin. So we have to keep these categories distinct. When Jesus is talking about getting into heaven, that's phase one, and it's a free gift. When Jesus is talking about discipleship, that is something where he is addressing those who are already saved in relation to their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. So when we come to this next section, Jesus is talking about discipleship. He's not talking about how to become a believer. He's talking about what is incumbent upon a believer who wishes to be a disciple. Now, there are three sections here, and I want to overview those briefly before we get into the first one. The first one is in, involves two verses, verses 32 and 33, and if we look at them, we can see that there are certain certain things that link or connect these two verses together. Uh, begins with a, a conclusion. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But contrast. So he's offering two antithetical points here. Two, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So in the first verse, we have two words that are that link it together, confess and confess. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father is in heaven. And then we have the contrast in verse 33, emphasizing denial. Whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now this confession and the denial take place before my Father who is in heaven, a phrase that is repeated in both verses. So this, these observations tell us that these two verses are connected, but they're not connected to the next set of verses. And here we have six verses in verses 34 to 39 that are connected. It may not seem that way at first. It may seem like it's broken down into a couple of different statements, but actually they're all connected. And if you observe the text carefully, you'll see there are certain things that, that tie them together. Initially, Jesus says in verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, we'll cover this next time and directly apply it to the announcement the angels made when the Lord was born, and they said, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. But And we often think about Jesus as the one who will bring peace. That is often what is touted at Christmas. But Jesus here says that he did not come to bring peace on the earth, but he came to bring a sword. What in the world does that mean, and is the Bible contradicting itself? Well, of course, it's not contradicting itself, but we have to understand the context here, and that is that the message of the kingdom is going to produce different responses. Those who accept it will have peace with God. Those who do not accept it will not have peace with God, and they will become antagonistic to the message to the point where they want to kill those who proclaim that message. This is the the summary of what Jesus is saying here. 
And then he explains that in verse 35. Notice it begins with the word for, indicating he's going to explain what he means by not um, coming to bring peace on the earth. He says, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So those two verses clearly connect together, but they are also an explanation of verse 34. Verse 37 then continues to pick up on this theme that uh, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now that introduces another key phrase here, not worthy of me. He repeats that uh, two more times. In the last part of 37, he says, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then in verse 38, he says, he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So that means that 38 and 37 are uh, directly connected by that phrase, uh, not worthy of me. And so that means 38 is not introducing a new topic. It's continuing the same, uh, same discussion. And then Jesus concludes this by saying, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so again, we see what's the criteria here? The issue is that we need to put Jesus before anything else in life, before before any family members, before any friends, before any details of life. The most significant thing in the life of someone who wants to be a disciple is someone who is 100% committed to learning, learning from Jesus, learning the Word of God, and applying it in their life. And then in conclusion, Jesus says, He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Then he says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And you all look at that and say, oh, I notice that he's using the word receive a lot. But what you don't notice is that the second word for receive in verse 41, the receiving of a prophet's reward, and the receiving at the end there, the receiving of a righteous man's reward, is a different word in the Greek. They're all connected, but it's important to pay attention to those nuances because Jesus is, says whoever receives, and, and even though these two words that are used here are, are about 90% synonymous, when they're used in the same context, they often show a slight different meaning so that he who receives or welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet, this has to do with hospitality, shall receive, that is to take or lay hold of, a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive what? A righteous man's reward. So we're talking about something different here. We're not talking about salvation because in salvation we are given a free gift, but a reward is something we earn. So this helps us to get a grasp of this in this section here that we're not talking about how we get into heaven or how we are justified. That is a free gift. We're learning something about uh, what is earned in the Christian life, and that has to do with rewards. And then he concludes with the statement in verse 42, whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, something minimal, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means, what? Lose his reward. So 1040 to 42 is, takes us to the topic of reward, which connects to discipleship. 
So in discipleship, the issue is walking with the Lord in terms of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, and it's in relation to that that we will ultimately be rewarded. Those who do not accept the challenge of of discipleship will not be rewarded. They will be given the free gift of eternal salvation, but they will not be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. This is the overview of this particular passage. So let's just look at the first two verses. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, one of the first things we should note here is the use of the word confess. This is a word we're familiar with, 1 John 1, 9. If, I can, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word homologeo is a legal term, and whenever we see that word, we ought to think first and foremost in terms of a legal setting. And so this is using and bringing to bear a legal setting where Jesus is before the high court, the supreme court of heaven, and something is going on here in relationship to evaluation. It is not talking about justification or getting into heaven, but we'll see something very different. Remember the principle, salvation is a free gift, but rewards are earned. So what Jesus is talking about here is going to come under the second category, uh, earning rewards or losing rewards, and he's talking about phase two. He's talking about our Christian life, not how to gain a Christian life. So the Bible talks about differences between salvation and rewards. Salvation is offered to all mankind. Jesus paid the penalty for all sins so that the issue is no longer what sin have you committed. The issue is trusting in Christ as Savior. Do you have the right kind of righteousness to get into heaven? Rewards are for believers. Rewards are for those who have trusted in Christ in reference to their spiritual life. Salvation is given to a few, but rewards are also given to a few. Not all believers will press on in terms of spiritual maturity. In salvation, Christ does the work. He completed the work on the cross. But in terms of rewards, the believer does the work. He is obedient. This is what James is talking about when he says faith without works is dead. He's talking about faith without application. That's what we're talking about when we talk about works. It's not talking about going out and doing good things. It's talking about doing what the Word of God says to do. And sometimes that involves application in terms of overt activity, but often it involves a focus on our thinking and our attitude. Salvation is a free gift, but rewards are earned. Point I've made many times already this morning. Salvation is permanent. You cannot lose it. But rewards may be lost. This is what's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. The emphasis is on that there are those whose works will be completely burned up at the judgment seat of Christ, yet they will enter heaven yet as through fire. Their justification, their eternal life is not lost, but their rewards are lost at the judgment seat of Christ. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, but rewards are on the basis of our walk by faith. 
our walk by God the Holy Spirit. Salvation provides us with an equal opportunity to grow to spiritual maturity and rewards uh, depend upon our use of that opportunity. So the focal point is on our rewards. At the very end of Revelation, at the very end of Revelation, Jesus Christ is quoted by John with a motivational statement that echoes the motivational statements he makes in Matthew chapter 10. It summarizes it. This is why Revelation was written to motivate us to pursue spiritual growth, to pursue discipleship. In Revelation 22:12, Jesus said, "Behold, I am coming quickly." And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Now, due to the fact that we had the Lord's table this morning, our time is running short. And what we need to cover in the rest of this, because this is a complex issue, I need to put off until next Sunday morning. Let's just go back and look at our passage again. What Jesus is saying is, whoever confesses confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Now that language is picked up and it is used in one of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, we come to the end of the letter to Sardis. And at the end of the letter to Sardis, in Revelation 3, verse 4, we have the evaluation and the motivation to do better. This is found in each of these short postcards. And in his evaluation of the church at Sardis, as Jesus comes to the end, he says, you have a few names, there's a few individuals, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Now, he's writing to a church. That church is composed of believers in Jesus Christ whose destiny is heaven. But in terms of their spiritual life, they have really messed up. They have defiled their garments, but they're still saved. But they have been living in apostasy, and they have been living in sin and carnality without recovery and without spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So he says, he describes that in terms of their garments. They have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. So there's a few in this one church who've grown to spiritual maturity, and they are going to have as part of their reward a closer intimacy with Christ in heaven. They will walk with him in white. And what does Jesus say then? For they are worthy. They are worthy. This is the same thing, that same terminology that Jesus uses back there in Matthew uh, chapter 10 when he is talking about the one who uh, loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The one who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So he's talking not about salvation, but being worthy of that uh, of that salvation, and that is with reference to rewards. And then Jesus says in, Ro- in Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. That's what he talks about in verse 4. They will walk with me in white. This is a reward. They will be clothed in white garments. And then Jesus says, I will not blot out his name 
from the book of life. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus would have or could have or that it's even possible to blot out a person's name from the book of life. Once we're saved, we're always saved. That's eternal security. But this is a figure of speech that is called technically litotes. Now, you're not going to remember that in five minutes, but that's okay. You often use the word the concept of litotes in the way you talk. If some friend of yours does well, somebody you work with, it receives a promotion or it receives praise for some activity, you may slap them on the back and say, not bad. See, what you're really saying is just the opposite. You're saying, well done. But you're using understatement and you're stating it in the opposite. You're saying, well, that's not bad. Or somebody may have done something or built something, and you say, well, that's not shabby. See, what you're saying is really the opposite, that that's really something that is well done. And so when you see this phrase in in Revelation 3, uh, 5, that you will not blot out, have your name blotted out, what that's simply reinforcing is just the opposite, that not only will your name be in the book of life and you'll have justification, but... I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Not only are you justified and you're not going to have your name blotted out because it's there, but something in addition is going to happen. I will confess your name. Christ will give praise to your name for your obedience, for your rewards before my Father and before his angels. So what Jesus is emphasizing here is for the disciple, the one who pushes forward, that the positive is that he will have special recognition at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what it means to confess his name before my Father who is in heaven. The contrast is that if that's not true, if you lose reward, then you will be denied, not salvation, but denied reward. Denied reward because of a life that was spent in disobedience and a life that was spent in spiritual failure. So the challenge before us is to recognize that there's an eventual accountability. There's an eventual accountability for all believers at the judgment seat of Christ. The issue there is not eternal life. The issue there, it has to do with the quality, the extent, the privileges of that eternal life in heaven. That getting into heaven is free, but the rewards are earned. And so that's the challenge before us. Now, there's more to this that I want to cover because it introduces something very technical, takes us to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 that must be understood, but it also takes us back to that important concept of being an overcomer, being a victorious Christian, being a Christian whose name is mentioned in praise at the judgment seat of Christ, and we have to connect the dots on that doctrine. So we'll do that when we come back next time. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we understand a great salvation that from the time of the Old Testament, from the time of Adam and Eve and their sin, all the way through until the final judgment, salvation is based on grace. We're saved by faith, through by grace through faith. It is a free gift. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But entering into your family and gaining eternal life, While that is a free gift, it is simply the beginning. 
after we're saved, we have a new life. That new life needs to grow. It needs to be nurtured and nourished, and it needs to be developed. And that comes only through a study of your word, a submission to your authority and to your word, and living a life of obedience by walking by God the Holy Spirit so that through his power we are matured and we grow and our lives will glorify you as that which is done in secret is revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Father, challenge each of us who are believers with the fact that we need to seriously, conscientiously think each day about how we are living for you. Father, there are some, though, who may not have ever trusted in Christ as Savior. They do not have eternal life. They do not have confidence or certainty of their eternal salvation. And, Father, we pray that it would be clear to them that the only hope is in Jesus Christ. Scripture says we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of your glory. There is none righteous, no, not one. And the only way that we can have righteousness is to have it given to us from someone who has perfect righteousness. Jesus Christ had perfect righteousness. When he died on the cross, it was for the, for the purpose that his righteousness might be given to us. He paid the penalty for our sin so that as our unrighteousness, as our sin was transferred to him, he paid that penalty so that his righteousness could then be transferred to us by faith. Just as Abraham trusted you and it was accounted to righteousness, this pattern is set up throughout the rest of Scripture that this is the only way to eternal life is to trust in you and by faith That faith is accounted to us as righteousness, not by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.